0: Hello, welcome to Farmgate. I'm Finlo Costain, the chief editor of 8.9.com and founder of the Food and Global Security Network. The fact that fashion is grown and comes from a farm would come as surprising news for many people. The world of advertising, fast fashion and high street brands seems to exist on a different plane entirely. In field fork fashion, Alice V. Robinson takes us on a journey into the origin story of leather and its intrinsic connection to food and farming. The book is a testament to the true meaning meaning of provenance, of value and of beauty. And it looks at how this can be better reflected in our own decisions around the clothes that we buy and the food farming and fibre systems in which we all participate. Alice V. Robinson joins me today, along with Sarah Grady, who, with Alice, recently established British Pasture Leather, which sources and processes cattle hides from regenerative farms for the UK fashion industry. Welcome both, Alice We're here primarily to discuss your book, Field Fork Fashion, but we're also going to talk about where it's led you. But let's start with the book, which is subtitled Bullock 374 and a Designer's Journey to Find a Future for Leather. Tell us about Bullock 374.
1: Yeah, I guess to start to introduce Bullock 374 is the animal behind the fashion collection I created back in 2019, Bullock 374 was a Longhorn limousine cross, which was reared on a farm near to where I grew up um, on the North Wales Shropshire border. The book, which is looking at the story of Bullock 374 and the farming food and fashion of which it is connected to, uh, really starts with the provenance and the histories of that animal and um, what that really means for the fashion that is is made from it.
0: And then it seems to me that it's about looking at the narrative of what happens to that animal. You know, where, obviously where it's come from is intrinsic, but then what happens to it afterwards and making sure that all of it is used, that, you know, nothing is left to waste. Exactly.
1: My interest really in leather and that provenance was because I believed that that information was really crucial to the decisions that I wanted to make as a designer. And that information was not readily available for me to know about the materials that were currently on my pattern cutting desk. And I really wanted to be led by that information. And so, By going all the way back to the original origin story of Bullock 374 and understanding more about the journey that one animal takes from a field through to finished fibre and then being able to have that direct a design process was something that... I felt was a crucial part of my design education when working with a natural fibre that is connected to farms and landscapes.
0: Now, Sarah, we're going to talk a bit more about that journey in due course, but Alice's journey ultimately brought her to you and the two of you are now in business together. So tell us about the purpose and indeed the passion of British Pasture Leather.
2: So British Pasture Leather, as you said, is producing leather from the hides of cattle raised on regenerative farms in the UK. And the key distinction there is that we are giving buyers and users of leather a choice to choose material that they can know has originated in positive systems that benefit animals, land, and people. So we're doing something that's quite different than the status quo in the conventional leather supply chain, which is that we're making a distinction based on the agricultural practices behind that material. And um, so the really the core passion of our business actually is very much about supporting the expansion of those regenerative farming practices. And we're doing that by changing the story around leather material, which is one of the outcomes of those systems.
0: Uh, You mentioned there the standard supply chain. What's wrong with the standard supply chain?
2: For us, again, you know, and, and each of us coming at this from different directions, Alice from her training as a designer, me, my experience working on food systems issues, it's just that the same way we can make choices around the meat that we consume and choose, for example, beef that we know was uh, 100% pasture-raised, That option currently is not available in the leather supply chain. So, you know, you don't really, either as a designer or as a buyer of a leather item, you don't have a choice right now to have that assurance that you're choosing a product or material that is derived from a food system or a farming system you may wish to support.
0: So it seems to me, without being too cheeky about it, that the purpose ultimately is to disrupt and reimagine what the British leather industry industry looks like?
2: Um, that's an exciting prospect. <laughs> um, that was not the mission that we set out with, but, um, but it seems like that's what we have to do in order to, to achieve the, the goals that we set out. I would say really one of the essential points that we've sought to make is the association of leather with farming and food. Because cattle hides, which are um, the pre- predominantly the material that leather is made from, come from a food system and a farming system. So, so associating that material with these food and farming systems um, is very much what, what we've set out to do, again, partly for the aspect of accountability around those choices. And as you said, making use of the whole animal um, and also for that aspect of of choice for, for users of the material.
0: Now, Alice, let's go back to the beginning of the story uh, and the beginning of you. Uh, you, you said that, <laughs> you know, you grew up on the Welsh Shropshire border. Was that in a town in a village uh, on a farm. What did your parents do?
1: It was at the top of a hill in the countryside and uh, we were situated there because my dad was a farm vet He'd grown up in Cheshire, which is across the Shropshire border. He was working with many of the sheep hill farmers in North Wales and his patch sort of spread across Shropshire and North Wales in that way. And therefore, my mum was a teacher actually at my high school. I feel like I have much more of an appreciation of a rural upbringing and all of the pleasant experiences that I, that came with that, whilst I really enjoyed having my mum as my teacher at school. Actually, the thing that was most beneficial for me was that she really encouraged me to be interested in design, which was a a passion of of mine since I was a child. I had never really associated the two at the time, having a, a design practice that was also led or influenced by my surroundings. It was something that came a lot later when I went to study fashion it took a very long time for me to reconnect the two.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because the way that you're talking there, you're very much, you know, you're coming from a rural tradition. Your dad's embedded in in the world of farming, but your mum then becomes that influence at high school. And and I'm, I'm interested in the way that you talk about uh, the way that art and fashion reflects surroundings because it reminds me as much as anything of, of Scottish tweed, the way that, mm. you know, tweed is very often a pattern version of the landscape in which mm-hmm. you know, the designers have lived in. And that came later for you. But your mum clearly was an influence. You went off to study fashion and did your master's at the Royal College of Art, So it wasn't just any art school. It was the RCA. So why yes. then did leather become your chosen material?
1: Well, leather became the material I was working with first because I had uh, switched from doing women's wear, where I was more focused on, on wovens, to focusing on accessory design. And that was the choice I made because I had felt quite unfulfilled with the pace of designing and producing garments that really had obsolescence sort of built into them. As soon as they were created, it was sort of what's next and what's more and and things like that. And I really wanted to move into creating a product that I hoped would have more longevity, even though sort of at that stage in my education, it was really just a constant place of exploration and research and trying to find a medium that I felt also personally connected to. So Working with leather was a happy coincidence that leather as a material is really favoured around creating products that do have longevity built into them because of its versatility and its durability and also its sort of history and emotion of being like very emotional relationship to a product that is made with leather because it can develop and change over time and, and can actually live with you for a very long time. So, At the same time, that was one of the reasons we were encouraged to work with the material, but also because in the industry that many of us were hoping to enter in a sort of high level, I'm using air quotes, luxury market leather is that favoured material for all of those reasons. And so it was really an assumption. And it was only at that point when I had started to work with leather that all of the other conversations that surround fashion, um, sustainability and um, the impact of the industry. Leather that then was brought into the conversation and was quite contentious because of its connection to agriculture. And um, I was experiencing quite a binary view of that sort of all leather is bad because all agriculture is bad. Um, and therefore it was it was quite a yeah it it, it was quite an emotive conversation because leather is is so clearly the absence of an animal's life in a material.
0: And why was agriculture bad?
1: Well much of the narrative that was connected to leather I think because of its connection to agriculture and the obscurity of what part of an industry it, it has come from. So as Sarah was explaining hides and skins aren't differentiated based on the practices of farms which created them in the same way that food is and so there was a lot of mystery around where did this material come from what farm and and what practices was it connected to and um, for me I found that really captivating and really promising because my experience my you know my bias was that I had been brought up heavily influenced by the work of my dad and the community that I had um, grown up around but it wasn't really until that point that I saw the opportunity or sort of the, the beauty of the material because it had all of those stories hidden within it.
0: So tell us about your degree
1: show. My degree show, I created a collection called Collection 11458. The snappy title. Very snappy, yeah. Lots of people get it completely right. <laughs> um, it was a collection made from the wool and leather of one sheep, which had come from a farm local to me in Shropshire. We, at the end of our degree show, all 52 students um, showed at an alternative version of what you would have as a catwalk show. So we were really encouraged at our university, not just to create fashion collections that were 10 looks and 50 products um, and displayed in, in a very conventional way. We were really encouraged to do presentations, performances, poetry, uh, fine art, things like that, that were um, manifestations of what fashion could be or manifestations of conversations we wanted to be having within the, in it, within the industry. And so I presented collection 11458, which was a jumper, a pair of gloves, a pair of shoes, a handbag, and a card wallet, all made from the fibers that came from this sheep. And at the end of my presentation, the audience of around 350 people were met with. Mini burgers that were made from the mints of that sheep that had been created by chef Margot Henderson. And the room really filled with that smell. And the waiters only came out at the very end of a presentation where I had shown on a big screen behind me the journey that had followed the sheep going from a, a field in Shropshire through. To butchery, tanning, uh, spinning of the wool, and also into designing and making a collection that was, I had hoped, would be a representation of the, the true materiality of this animal and therefore what that can look like in, in fashion.
0: Now, it sounds to me like an astonishing sort of holistic experience, that degree show. I mean, it sounds a- absolutely fantastic. And clearly, other people thought so too. And you were suddenly invited to bring it to the VA, which is the Victoria and Albert Museum, which specializes in clothes. Design and Fabrics. Now, that's quite a leap for any student designer. How did that come about?
1: Oh, yeah, I absolutely thought I was dreaming. I've been going to the V&A since I was a young girl, and I have a huge amount of uh, admiration and respect for, for the museum. And it came about because at the that presentation, um, one of the curators was in the audience. And the v was in the workings of putting on an exhibit called Food Bigger Than the Plate. And so it was really just serendipity that a platform that was looking at wanting to platform stories that were adjacent to the food industry, that were connected to what we eat and how land is used, that they saw a place in the exhibit for um, my work. And so I was invited to bring my box with um, my collection in it uh, to the two curators, Catherine and, uh, and Mary uh, and, and May, and we sat down. And obviously, I said, you know, please take the box. I would be absolutely delighted. But I told them that I had just met Malcolm Adams and that I really wanted to pursue the way that I was working and the research that I'd begun. And would they be receptive? Because this was in the summertime and the exhibit wasn't to open until April, May. Uh, would they be receptive to me seeing if I could... Produced new work in that time because it was research that I was going to be doing anyway and, and I was very very lucky that they were incredibly supportive and they didn't actually know what I would be bringing until the day I brought it to be installed into the exhibit so I was very grateful for their the trust in that.
0: So with that V&A exhibition was it the sheep work and also the Bullock 374 work that, that ultimately you showed?
1: No it was just the it was just Bullock 374 my master's collection um, has since been acquired by the VNA so it's in their library for for students and researchers to have a look at
0: fantastic we're going to come on to Bullock 374 in just a moment it was a slightly topsy-turvy way of doing it but at the <laughs> same time you know because I appreciate that that was the uh, that that was the exhibition but I want to go into the detail of uh, of your <laughs> your story there and Malcolm of course was the farmer who reared uh, Bullock 374 but Sarah you've been sitting very patiently in the background and this <laughs> This, of course, is where you come into the story. You first saw the collection at the v What were your first thoughts when you saw it?
2: I thought it was a very eloquent commentary on something that's very complex. And I thought that it was brilliantly presenting something that we don't ever get to see. Which is the animal and the farm behind leather as a material. And so I thought it was a very succinct, very direct, um, very impressive way of revealing something that is usually obscured.
0: Yeah, I, and I love that phrase that you used, eloquent commentary, because I was just thinking zeitgeist. And it was, there's yeah. there's something about the way that uh, Alice had tapped into an issue which clearly she felt passionately about, but which was emerging as a big issue uh, at the time. And uh, and clearly the people at the VNA thought so too, and it was something that they wanted to share. And it feels like it was a quite a revelatory moment for for the both of you because now you've both gone into business together what convinced you that that was a good idea
2: I mean I so I actually had been preoccupied by this question from a totally different perspective from an involvement that I had with an agricultural organization in the state of New York just north of New York City in the Hudson Valley and I had similar to Alice, at the same time, been asking this question, like, what happens to the hides of the animals that are being raised for meat on these excellent farms that are prioritizing animal welfare and biodiversity and ecosystem functions shouldn't shouldn't we know what happens to these hides <laughs> you know and then by the same token the other side of the coin alice was saying hang on a second i want to work with leather why can't i know where this leather has come from and i had actually done some experiments with a tannery in new york bringing hides and skins from farms that i knew and making just some experimental pieces of leather from that but in the meantime, I had relocated and found myself in the UK and um, was very fortunate to be connected to Alice at the time of her exhibition. And we had a wonderful conversation, which we both remember very well, where, you know, we sort of said we have the same very specific interest, which, as you say, was clearly, you know, squarely in the zeitgeist. And um, shouldn't we do something with this idea? And I, and I remember really well that one of the things that gave us confidence to start imagining a project together was Alice's recognition of the um, interest that she was receiving from other designers and makers after seeing her exhibition.
0: Yeah, because Alice, this is a woman that you've not met before who comes along you know I mean, to be honest it's, it's every designer's dream isn't it you 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 get picked up from the RCA you go to the VNA somebody comes along and and is impressed by it and starts talking to you about going into business together but what convinced you that Sarah was the woman to do that with
1: well we were definitely on the phone for like an hour and a half and i remember really vividly like pacing so enthusiastically around the kitchen because I had definitely felt by the end of that work and and putting it into that exhibit that I was then faced with the, okay, well, what next? Like, I have no more material to work with. This industry is incredibly complex. And how does this move from just being commentary where I can also be a designer who is working with a material that that is a material that I, I feel strongly that I want to be able to create and work with and and then put my name on and put out in the world. And so being introduced to Sarah was like, oh my gosh, there's this kindred spirit, but she's on the wrong side of the planet. And we were incredibly fortunate that, that Sarah was on her way over to the UK and we, and we got to keep her in the end. It was really exciting um, for me because I think for a while I was in a, in a in a space of trying to actually figure out what my thoughts and feelings were uh, for what I wanted to create as a designer and what I wanted to put out there. And there was a, a lot of um, conversation around, and what does it mean to be a fashion designer and do I need to be putting out product into the world and is that just what I've trained to do to to draw and design and make bags and um, what had arisen from the experience of creating um, Bullock 374 and that research was more that there was definitely an opportunity to design a different type of system and that that would be Um, you know, a part of the work that we could progress with.
0: Sarah, can I just come back to you for a moment? Your accent, clearly, you're not from Shropshire. You're from the US (laughs) uh, originally. And you say that you were on your way over here. But I, I wonder if you would be able to sort of compare and contrast a little bit the state of regenerative agriculture, the state of this conversation between where you were based in the US and where you are now in the UK community
2: sure well so i was very privileged to be part of an agricultural organization in the states that is very much in the midst of this movement shall we say so uh, really working on food system transformation and also the expansion and the advancement of regenerative agricultural practices so i was really lucky to be part of that conversation for many years um, in America, and to be part of an organization that allowed me to travel throughout uh, the country and to visit lots of different events and conferences in different parts of the states. And there's a tremendous sense of momentum and community there in America, even though America is a huge country <laughs> with many, you know, radically different geographies um, and cultures in this field of, of, of discourse around, around food and agriculture, there's quite a lot of cohesion and there's a lot of philanthropic support too. So that, that's a real difference, I think, between the states and the European systems is that um, individual philanthropy is very strong in America. So I, to be honest, slightly took it for granted, you know, that there would be this tremendous, you know, sense of momentum and energy and community and support. And then um, actually initially, I, I moved briefly to France before I ended up uh, living in the UK and I found none of that cohesion in France so I was very relieved when I arrived in the UK and I was able to attend some events that were where people were speaking um, and, you know, and getting active around farming and food system topics. And in fact, in fact, it's one of these events that brought me and Alice together originally. And I realized that the sort of size and scope and scale of the UK and also the conditions in in post-Brexit Britain meant that there's there's starting to be that same level of cohesion and momentum and energy. And I think it's a tremendous moment to be involved in that community here in the UK. And I think there's the the, the possibility of really seeing and experiencing some of what, you know, what I uh, experienced several years ago in the States.
0: Now, I was going to say, it's fascinating to, to hear that. And it struck me from the research that we've done over the course of the last few years around Regen, that it's a subject to a large extent that was born in the USA, um, yeah. but that it's it's moved around the world. New Zealand do an awful lot on regen as well. And the UK, as you say, uh, post-Brexit, you know, this was when we were having this big conversation, which was the same time at which regen was emerging as as a concept. And it strikes me that the way that regen is being interpreted is actually a bit different between different regions. In the sure. US, it still seems to be very soil-centric, whereas in the UK, you have all that sort of soil soil aspect but you also have the biodiversity and importantly you also have the society and economy sort of elements as well is that is that fair from your perspective
2: definitely you know the the statistics about biodiversity loss in the UK are appalling um you know and i think also just the fact that it's an island you know so if you if you look at the at the scope and the geography, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense that there, that, that, that those topics and those aspects would be more evident here. And again, you know, just the diversity of landscapes in America along with political and economic systems, you know, means that it's going to be a very different context there. But I, but I think one of the things that relates to the work that Alice and I are doing here, which makes this place, a kind of perfect context for the all the work that we're talking about right now, is that this is a landscape and an ecosystem that is well suited to raising ruminant animals because it grows grass well. And not only that, you know there are there are centuries old traditions. Of um, of raising ruminant flocks or herds on this landscape, um, and there's co-evolution and co-development. So the idea that we can partner with grazing cattle or or sheep to steward these landscapes, and then really look at you know what that means in terms of all of the impacts on both our food systems as well as fiber and material culture. Um, to, it's just a, sort of a perfect venue for us to be advancing this story around around leather,
0: Alice we probably should start talking about your book. Field Fork Fashion follows the story of the afterlife of Bullock 374. This was an animal that you knew when he was alive, reared by Malcolm, as you uh, were mentioning earlier. You took him to the abattoir yourself, so how did you feel when you collected the still warm bag with his hide and horns? I felt a a tremendous sense
1: of uh, responsibility and also accountability because I was there. So what I had experienced quite a lot around leather is this word byproduct of the meat industry, which is just shrouded in anonymity. And I felt like you've made all of this very visible. And therefore that came with a huge sense of responsibility. I really didn't know what to expect as as someone who has eaten meat my whole life with a with an understanding often of the provenance and and the people and places that have produced it but never have I been in the front of a van where the animals are on the trailer behind me and I felt a, re- a great responsibility both to Malcolm and to Bullock 374 to make sure that this hide wasn't wasted and It uh, was very, very daunting, really, actually. Um, Was it upsetting?
0: Was it upsetting to suddenly be confronted by the reality of your choices?
1: Yeah, it was, actually, because it was an experience that I don't think I could have prepared myself for because it wasn't something I could have asked um, somebody else about. I actually spent a lot of... uh, My attention was on Malcolm because I wanted to to also understand how he felt. Because what became very apparent to us was that the hide of this animal wasn't going to be collected in the first place. It very sadly was going to be going into a offal and Category 3 waste bin and going into either landfill incineration um, and destruction. And so I wanted to understand what what my uh, role in that chain of events was and what that responsibility therefore was for me as a user and and maker of fashion that can be that is derived from you know from a living animal and a food system and so it was a lot to try to process really because the entire experience had many many layers that I couldn't quite equip myself up until putting myself in that situation.
0: I want to dwell on that emotional element just for a moment longer because you talked earlier on about uh, you know the attitude that other people have towards agriculture and towards leather as a, as a product. And you know if you if you're talking to the average um, vegan, perhaps one of the reasons why you know a vegan might be against leather or might be against meat is that you know they see farmers and farming as being a cruel process, a heartless process and of course you know the point at which that that often hits home for people is is the you know the killing is the abattoir do you think that farming is heartless
1: no i i was one part of the journey that was great revelation for me was understanding how much heart was in it but also how um in some instances how little control there was for the farmer so in the case of the abattoir i had never. Understood, nor had the opportunity really to understand the nuances in in how an animal can be killed or how it can enter a food chain. And Malcolm is a smaller scale farmer and therefore um, produces. Um, and sells his meat to his local community uh, through meat boxes or through the butcher or local pubs. And in order to do that, he requires a service called Private Kill, which is offered most usually by smaller and medium-sized abattoirs that are able to facilitate a private kill and therefore returning the same carcass back to a farmer. And the closure of those abattoirs has been happening at a really alarming rate such so that there is only around 60 small scale medium scale abattoirs left in the UK and they are distributed unevenly around the country so we were incredibly fortunate that Malcolm's facility was a very short journey away and the importance of that to Malcolm and for the his concerns for animal welfare, the welfare of his animals, was the highest priority that day. I'd arrived early at Charity Farm to help load um, the cattle onto a trailer. Malcolm felt quite strongly that he wanted to take more than one animal at a time because his cattle uh, live you know, in fields that they build their own community and being separated from that herd can be distressing. And so... Loading the animals calmly and also travelling as shorter distance as possible to a facility where they would not be waiting and where they would go from a trailer and into a layerage and into a cool pen as quickly as possible, um, as calmly as possible, was really the highest priority and uh, was the, the priority. And... There wasn't a sense of ease or calm until that had been done successfully. So I sat incredibly quietly for the whole day until that had happened. And Malcolm had reiterated to me so many times that it brought him a huge sense of um, comfort and feeling of control around how he can choose to produce food from his land because he has access to the facilities that are fundamental for him to be able to do that the way he wants and so that was evidenced in the fact that once we had reversed the trailer and unloaded the animals the guys at the abattoir said you know you can come back in you know in less than a couple of hours because the hide will be ready and and Malcolm just said you know that is really important is important for me and it was those layers of complexity that i think are often um you know you don't have the opportunity to discuss because the conversation sometimes is on that first emotive level of should we be doing this or bad but also what are the complexities to the system yeah. where we can try to improve
0: upon. So let's talk briefly about the economics of the abattoir process because you were talking about the way in which the hide was likely to go off into uh, into incineration and landfill. So how is a cow divided up after slaughter? What normally, ha- what normally happens to the hide?
1: So the hide is a part of what's termed the fifth quarter which is also historically called the butcher's profit. so the hide horns hooves offal blood bones fat are all categorized in that fifth quarter which the two forequarters and the two hind quarters being the carcass and meat and the fifth quarter being all of those other parts of an animal that can also be sold on and be turned into a multitude of different products by working with many different industries from beauty uh, you know, cosmetics to different food products, to pet food, leather industry and such. And so the hide goes into that category and it is a part of that butcher's profit. So it is a product that the abattoir sells on into these industries. It is not an additional product of the farmer
0: for their revenue stream. So the um, farmer doesn't get paid more because you're taking the hide away?
1: no. So what's interesting is when trying to unpick the economics of what is this value of a hide and how does bringing use to it have either a beneficial impact or a detriment to a farmer? The best understanding I could gather is that Malcolm has explained to me that the cost of his private kill goes up when those hides aren't collected because the cost of disposal for an abattoir, instead of seeing revenue for that hide, that cost is going to be incurred by them and passed on to the farmer because it is they are paying to remove something that is now being deemed waste. And that fifth quarter revenue is um, typically a line item that an uh, abattoir relies on in order to, to break even or, or or even make a small amount of profit.
0: So there is a cost benefit for the farmer, uh, but it's not that they get paid for the hide. It's that there's a change to the price that they're paid for the animal when it comes in.
1: I I mean, I wouldn't be able to have an example of showing that on a uh, you know transactional basis, but the anecdotal evidence that I've gathered from abattoirs and farms is that when the hides aren't collected and when they aren't being bought by a hide collector and entering a leather value chain, the cost to a farm goes up Mm. because Mm. that burden and that expense of removal... And uh, destruction is born is born by an abattoir, okay. and that is then passed on.
0: And presumably, that's uh, arranged on a farmer by farmer, abattoir by abattoir basis. Yeah, yeah, very it interesting.
1: Ch- it changes it changes abattoir by abattoir. Something that is really um, interesting, I think, around how we treat raw materials that come from agriculture is that, as Sarah's explaining, we don't currently aggregate them based on the environmental impact for what those animals have had in the same way that we can in in food or based on the practices that have created them. They are all equal and they all have the capacity to become leather. So when they're treated in that way and when they are abundant globally and a part of a globalised supply chain, those commodities, whether you can collect them at a larger scale facility where you're collecting a thousand at a time or a small scale, more rural abattoir, where they are given the same individual value but are in, you know, much... Fewer than the cost of collection, salting, and selling them, um, you are benefiting from that economy of scale from from collection from a larger scale facility.
0: So in the same way that 20 or 30 years ago, uh, we started to see free range eggs being differentiated rather than just at farm scale, uh, more at commodity scale as well. That's that's really where you're starting to work. It's starting to try and create some of that differentiation uh, in that leather process. It's fascinating. So let's go back to Bullock 374. You've got his hide in a big bin bag. What mm-hmm. happens next?
1: What happens next, we, we take it back to a farm and it's really crucial that um, the hide is preserved before it can start to deteriorate, before any sort of biological activity can compromise what the finished leather will look like and how um, effective the tanning process will be. So to do that, you can do it in a couple of different ways, either refrigeration or, or ice if you're going straight into a tanning process quickly. For me, because I needed to find a tannery to work with, I salted the hide. So you spread out a hide on pallets and make sure that there aren't any creases. So any of the folds where um, the arms or neck or belly have been, it's really crucial that they all spread out so that salt touches all parts of the um, exposed skin. And then you leave it for a couple of weeks. It releases a lot of liquid. And um, because I felt uh, a huge sense of responsibility and anxiousness around messing up the stage, I would check on it quite frequently and um, kept on salting it to make sure that it was safe.
0: And and we should say at this point that the the book is really interesting in the way that it's kind, you know, you're dealing with the big issues, you're sort of taking us through, you know, this narrative uh, with this particular animal, but it's also a how to guide. And, you know, there are a lot of pictures, there's a lot of sort of stage work um, Mm -hmm. in in terms of this is what happens and this is what happens next and and taking us through that whole process. And we're not going to even talk in this podcast about what happens with the butchery but you go into that in quite some detail okay. as well so we've gone to the salting talk us through the pre-tanning process what i
1: found really interesting um sort of throughout that process was all of the small details that now i can piece together in the work that we're doing that go into the effect of how leather is eventually valued so for instance at the hide removal stage because i was working Malcolm chose to take his animals to a smaller scale abattoir. The way that they'd removed the hide was also different to a larger scale facility. So there were some flame marks, so where a knife had cut through and the abattoir had taken great care to not puncture the hide. But even those flame marks would eventually show up in the finished leather and then contribute to how conventionally it would be valued in the industry. So, The tanning process also had similar um, sort of nuances to that in the story. In the UK, there are only certain facilities that can process cattle hides. At the time of the project, there was uh, three vegetable tanneries in the UK for cattle leather, a vegetable tannery being a facility where they use tannins that are derived from barks and leaves. Um, to produce leather, so those tannins are what um, stops the collagen from degrading and will React in a way
0: that um, makes a usable material. Okay, so Uh, so help me out here because we're talking about the tanning process now. In many ways, one would, uh, if you know, coming to this fresh, I imagine that one would think that standard leather is in you know a fairly industrialised process with lots of steel. Now you're talking about vegetable dyes, which makes me think of something quite different. um, And uh, and and my own experience of tanneries is from my time living in Fez in morocco where you've got open tanneries and a lot of urine uh, and the stench is is incredible um i mean you know it's it's an exciting process to watch but i can't imagine it's quite the same as the process we have in small tanneries in the uk so just talk me through what you know i go through the door what am i seeing
1: the tannery that i worked with is, is definitely more like your former big steel drums Um, So it was really my ambition that, like the collection I'd done for my masters, that I wanted to produce a material that was reflective of its origins, I wanted to produce a uh, sort of low intervention, very um, natural material that could exemplify the natural character of leather and for me personally vegetable tanning does that because you have the opportunity to create patina um, in the leather and it reacts to light and and touch and it's um, incredibly beautiful in that way and it's a more historic method of producing leather not the same as as in the morocco tanneries but more of a traditional method where you you place the hides into pits so that method of tanning now only constitutes for around like 5% of global leather production. The majority is um, produced through a method called chrome tanning, which is around 85 to 90%. And the rest are like alternative tannages. That process is done at a really large scale, as, as you said, and it can produce leather much more quickly than other tanning methods that can take months. Chrome tanning typically only takes around uh, a week, a, a little bit longer it was really an experience for me when I had this hide and I, I wanted to produce finished leather so that I could create a leather collection. Very different to my work when I was studying was that that really required having a look at what the reality of the infrastructure is of the industry in the UK. So if any farmers are listening and they have struggled to take one hide at a time to a tannery, it's, It's exactly what I encountered. Taking one hide and asking for it back as finished leather is incredibly challenging, well, specifically because of the scale in which
0: the material is typically produced. But you found tanneries in the UK that would do that.
1: I did, yes. Uh, I turned up. um, I said, please may you have a conversation with me. I'll be on your doorstep tomorrow morning. And it was through the fact that these businesses... Shared my passion for the material and also were interested in the conversation I wanted to have around why, you know, why is this so challenging and also where has this industry gone from a country that, as Sarah said, is growing a lot of grass and producing a lot of animals um, fed from it. They helped me and were very receptive to figuring out a process that would work within their tannery. And that's described within the book of how we went through a typical tanning process, but had tweaked it in a way so that the traceability was ensured for Bullock 374 hide to not get lost within the rest of the
0: production. And again, you mentioned the book there, and I, I really should just sort of make it clear to people <laughs> listening that the book goes into a lot of detail. Any questions that people have about the process, they're, they're almost certainly answered uh, in the book. And and it really is a fantastic sort of blow-by-blow account of, of, how, of how this process works. Sarah, as a co-founder of British Pasture Leather, what are you looking for in A Good Tanned
2: Hide? I think one of the things that we've really learned about the leather that we've made thus far is that it is a beautifully strong and durable material that has a level of character, is often the term that's used, um, that really speaks to its life as an animal. And that is a thing that personally, I really appreciate in that material. So it's highly variable, um, it's characterful, and there's a lot of beauty in those qualities. Um, And then as far as its usability, it's in part thanks to the raw material and the fact that these animals have grown naturally on their natural diet and also partly attributed to the vegetable tanning process that Alice touched on, it's a very uh, strong and durable material that will make products that will last for a very long time and be highly repairable uh, so that for me those are the those are the um, aspects of of quality that we've come to really emphasise in the leather material that we're making.
0: And when we talk about quality and, you know, going through the process that Alice has described, you tend to associate a higher price tag with quality. So we're talking about small scale, short chain, individual relationships. How much cost does this add for you and and for the end customer?
2: At the moment, the finished leather that we're producing, which we're able to do in small volumes, has to be priced at a premium price, um, not, not only because there's value in, you know, all the many attributes that we've described, but also, as you say, the fact that we've made a commitment to do this locally and to do it in a way that, as Alice has noted, is longer and more time intensive and labor intensive. The, the, the costs of production are high for us here to fulfill that vision. I do think it's important to note, however, that the way that we're producing leather right now with British Posture leather is being compared to a material that is treated as a commodity and is produced in globalized systems that don't actually return value to all the the players along that supply chain in in the way that you know that we are attempting to do here and in a way that I believe would recognize its true cost.
0: So in terms of of that value in terms of that quality that origin story, the provenance is incredibly important, isn't it? It's it's important for you to be able to tell that story. But then- and for the person who's then taking that product and turning it into a finished product, into a designed piece of clothing or a pair of shoes or boots, it's really important for them in order to be able to justify the added value that they're uh, expecting from it.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, kind of going back to what we are talking about at the beginning of this conversation, one of the central aims of the work that we're doing is to reassociate leather with agriculture. And in doing that, be able not only to choose which food and farming systems we are supporting, but to bring value to the ones that have tremendous benefit. Um, and something that I've been thinking about lately because we are Getting asked this question more and more around price and value and cost. You know, I've been thinking a lot about what does the word commodity really mean? Because hides are traded and valued as a commodity, and therefore so is leather. And I think essentially what that word means is that we value it very little. And that's I think that if if we were going to go back to one of your earlier questions, sort of like what is wrong or what is the mistake that we've made, you know, in this material supply chain, it is that, you know, which is that we're t- looking at something that has resulted from the life of an animal that was raised to produce food for us. And as you've heard Alice and I both say in the course of this conversation, we believe personally that. We have accountability and responsibility for doing that. Therefore, we need to look at the value of everything that is yielded from that system and from that animal. Um, and so for me, I don't think of hides as a commodity or leather as a commodity, and that's not the way that we are producing it or trading it. You know, we're we're really looking at what is its value, both in terms of the landscape that it's connected to, and therefore all those questions around biodiversity and ecosystems. Um, you know, the welfare of the animal, and then also the people and the communities that are attached to that production.
0: And for me, I suppose when you use the word commodity, what I'm hearing is high external costs but to both society and to the environment as well, uh, you know, so that it's it's not that that product is cheaper. It's just that the costs associated with That's that just right. haven't been built in. And of course, what you're doing at British Pasture Leather is the antithesis of of that process. Alice, at British Pasture Leather, you're not intending to make finished products. So what are you selling and who are you selling to?
1: Um. So definitely remains to be seen tbd whether we will produce um some products ourselves in the future but at the moment we are really focused on building relationships with the design community makers and brands that are aligned in this vision for what leather material is and and what its opportunity could be in terms of, of the material to design with that has um, a connection to all of the other things that we've just been discussing. So for the moment, we've really been looking at British Brace Brands that currently are really interested in having a leather with this origin story that is made in the UK and also want to support the production of that and those industries flourishing in the UK. We did an exhibition last year for the London Design Festival where some of our first batches of leather were given to a range of different brands and designers from Mulberry and New Balance to Artsy London to Charlie Burrow, Tabitha Ringwood, um, Bill Amberg, and a range of products from footwear to upholstery and accessories were created. And the hope there was really to show what this material can create and, and what is it suited to producing. So something that Sarah and I have felt very strongly about throughout this process is that we've wanted to, kind of in a similar way, of the restrictions that were around creating the Bullock 374 collection was put some parameters around how we want to be able to produce British pasture leather. And one of those things was to work with British tanneries. So we have a brilliant relationship that we are incredibly grateful for to a vegetable tannery in Bristol to produce the material and also a family run finishers up in Kettering. And the result of that, as Sarah said, is a very versatile, beautiful material. But the raw material that we're working with, the hides that are coming from Pasture for Life Farms are really dictating therefore what the material creates, what type of material is created and therefore what it's suited to become. And we really want to be directed by that. What can this material be and how can, that, how can value be best brought to that material therefore? And so it's been really exciting at the moment to be working with designers that share that vision and are really open to what that could create and what those products could be.
0: We're running close on time, but Sarah, just finally, you've built up uh, the business with a relationship with Pasture for Life Farmers so that you've been able to source regeneratively farmed cattle. To what extent do you think the whole process is scalable? What are the basic challenges?
2: The first challenge for us has to do with collecting hides and maintaining the systems of traceability that we've begun to develop. So Pasture for Life... Right now is the certification um, that is most prevalent that reflects those highest standards of practice. As we said before, you know the regenerative farming movement is growing so much in the UK right now that um, one aspect of scalability will be the expansion of those practices along with certifi- certifications. So having more farms adopt Pasture for Life as a certification and also the growth of other certifications that also represent those very high standards will mean that we will have access to a greater volume of material that we can um, have the assurance comes from those regenerative uh, farming practices. One of the challenges for us is all of the coordination that goes into working with slaughterhouses. So we need to have some critical mass in a particular area to have a substantial volume coming through even from multiple regenerative farms. So the growth and the expansion of regenerative practices along with the certifications will allow us to have some scalability around access to raw material. The other challenge for us, as Alice mentioned, is that the infrastructure for leather production in the form of tanneries sadly has been shrinking in the UK. So access to tanning is, is one of our obs- and we may have the possibility uh, to increase the volume of leather that, that we're producing in a British tannery, and that would be our other opportunity to scale.
0: Fantastic. Well, that's it. That's all we've got time for. I feel like we could keep on talking on this subject. It's been so interesting and thank you so much for your time. I'd like to thank my guests, Alice V. Robinson and Sarah Grady. Alice's book, Field Fork Fashion, is available from all good booksellers and it's the perfect gift for anyone interested in understanding more about where their clothes and their food actually come from. And Alice and Sarah's company, British Pasture Leather, can be found at britishpastureleather.com. If you've enjoyed listening. Please come back and listen to more. Tell your friends, like us, review us and share our links. Farmgate is funded by Sankalpa. It's part of the 8.9 hectares news channel and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for 8.9ha. I've been Finlow Castain Bye for now.